Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we're on episode 96. It is September 17th. My name is Tyler and as always I am with Pratik and Nick. So kicking it off with Nick, how are you doing today? Well, I was excited to talk about this railroad strike, but it seems like a deal has been made and the crisis has been averted. Um, but that aside, got a lot of great stories lined up. Pratik, how are you doing this week? I'm good. I feel like Nick's exciting because now he has that Duke Blue Devil shirt. So now he's like a resident North Carolinian, which is pretty awesome. But yeah, no, I think I'm ready for the show. I'm excited. There's a lot of stuff going on. And like, we're just, you know, there's a lot of things going on. And we're going to have to try to sum it up as best as we can. So we can talk about everything. You know what I mean? I think the people know what you mean, Pratik. So we're actually going to be kicking it off with you this week, talking about a pretty controversial subject. Please tell us what's going on. So Virginia will block schools from accommodating transgender students. So in Virginia, the administration of Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin will require that transgender students in Virginia access school facilities and programs that match the sex they were assigned at birth and is planning to make it more difficult for students to change their names and genders at school. The Department of Education is requiring that families submit legal documentation to earn earn their children the right to change names and genders at school. The guidelines also say teachers cannot be compelled to refer to transgender students by their name and genders if it goes against a constitutionally protected free speech rights. Under the new guidelines, schools can and cannot encourage or instruct teachers to conceal material information about a student from their student's parent including information related to gender. The opposition to these guidelines have heavily cited the correlation between higher suicide rates to these proposed laws, when they pen, which they pen by the name hate crime laws. School districts must adopt the new state guidelines or policies that are more comprehensive after a 30-day comment period that will begin on September 26th, the Education Department said. The Board of Education will not have to vote to adopt the policies. So, Tyler and Nick, what are your opinions on this new proposed transgender law in Virginia? Well, one thing that's interesting to me right off the bat is that it's a 30-day comment comment period. Usually for these types of rules, you see a 60-day period where they have to do stakeholder outreach. So that sort of stands out as they're trying to shuffle this along through. Number two is, I, I don't get why that's the repeated issue here is like what someone's name is, how you refer to someone in class. I get how it could be potentially tricky to navigate for some teachers, but at the same time, a bill like this, I think it just goes back to common decency. Where, for example, if some, let's say someone goes by their middle name. Their first name's Ben, they go by their middle name, Jerry. If you keep calling Jerry Ben every single day, you know, because they want to go by their middle name, Jerry, it's sort of like, you know, a, a lack of respect there. So I just think this is a very simple thing like, hey, whether you have, I don't know, I don't identify with this name, I would prefer that you call me this. I really don't think it's that big of a deal. The whole bathroom thing, I mean, Pratik, again, being the uh, NC expert on this one with the bathroom bill years ago, I would defer to you on this. But just from the basic naming standpoint and gender standpoint, I really don't see why it's such a huge deal to have to actually push this through in some sort of legislation. Tyler? Well, in terms of the saying someone's pronoun or their proper name, that becomes an issue because we've seen in certain places where they try to mandate legislatively that you are violating the law if you don't call them by the proper name uh, or use the proper pronoun. And that would go against something like freedom of speech. And we've already seen professors in the United States 
be either removed for a position, losing tenureship, being fired, being ousted from their position for going ahead and doing things like this. So it kind of pro provides those people um, some sort of protection, even though it is provided in the Constitution already. So I think that's what they're going with this bill. Um, in terms of the bathroom thing, personally, I don't think it's a big deal. We went through this whole thing in 2016 where it was like, all right, maybe there's going to be some transgender people going to the other bathroom and uh, causing some mischief in there and everything's going to go haywire. But let's be real here. Transgender people have existed for a long time in the community, uh, in society, and they really haven't had that sort of disruption happen. Um, but I will say they're pointing to the argument that the suicide rate is so high for transgender people, therefore they need these laws passed. I think that's a very poor argument. Not only because uh, it, it doesn't really have anything to do with this specific law, but also because when you look at things like uh, surgery where they're actually transitioning to the other genders, we do not see an improvement in the suicide rate. So why are we assuming? What's the evidence we have that we're actually going to be lowering the suicide rate over time by enacting this kind of law? I don't see it. I think they're trying to use anything they can to uh, prevent this from happening. Um, but overall, I guess I would side with them where I don't think it's that big of a deal. I just kind of see what happened in North Carolina and what's happening now here. Yeah, I, I don't see how the whole uh, gender dysphoria thing will end up reducing. I, I Basically, what I'm trying to say here is I agree with you, Tyler, where I think if you already have gender dysphoria coming into it, you're already trying to figure yourself out. You're at a tumultuous point of your time during middle school, high school, etc. You know, why sort of make that that much harder? And I think that would end up driving up the rate even more if you were to say, oh, look, you know, you're dead naming someone in class. That's a very, you know, emotionally charged thing to be doing. So I just think in general, um, one, I agree with you, too. I don't see how it would be a benefit to reducing the rate. It's like, what, we're just going to put our heads in the sand and ignore it. I just don't see that as a real solution. But Pratik, what were you going to say? So I think this is one of those cases where you're too heavily regulated and people are way too sensitive. It's like one of those, there's not really a right, right answer, but it's just a way of perspective. Like, I think that these issues have never, never really been issues. But recently, people have started saying that we need to be called by certain pronouns, he slash him slash his, or she slash her slash hers, or they slash them slash theirs. All these pronouns have been kind of confusing to a lot of people. A lot of people think that these pronouns are beneficial and helpful because they allow people to make sure that they're not discriminating against other people. But it's one of those that the on the flip side, people that are Republican constituents, they don't like these policies because they're opposed to, you know, transgender, you know, type stuff. They believe that, you know, it goes against the will of God, especially a lot of socially conservative groups, which is what Virginia's government is trying to win over in the first place. But it's one of those that no one, there's not many people that are really like pissed off about stuff. I mean, depending on the laws, they're trying to say in these issues that Democrats are trying to argue that these kind of policies lead to higher suicide rates, while the opposite side is saying that people having these gender dysphoria things are leading to suicide rates being really high. So it's one of those that there's not really a right answer. It's just a matter of perspective. But the well, issue that is... That whole argument's a non sequitur. Yeah. It makes no sense. The suicide Agreed. rate tied it is nothing tied to that policy, and you can't yeah. provide any evidence that it Again, does. So I... I'm not I'm not disputing that. I just think is one of those that 
Obviously, when a Republican administration is there, they're trying to win their constituents. Their constituents don't like kids classifying themselves as transgender. They want that even if their kid does that, that the parents know about it because the parents want to be in the loop of what's going on in their kids' lives. But at the same time, you this these kind of things have never really been a big issue. But now whenever you try to create laws surrounding it, it makes it a bigger issue than it is, which causes both sides to become more polarized at the moment so it's one of those that like i don't think that this stuff has really ever mattered i don't remember when i was in school that i ever like even encountered many transgender people and if we did then we're like okay the person's transgender like it's never been that big of an issue but the thing is that recently these issues have become very much like a polarizing issue on both sides and like i don't think that th these kind of things are just wedge issues that become major issues because these sides are trying to win their you know voter bases so that's well, how yeah, I it's see also it. easy to convince a parent to vote for you uh, when they believe their kids are being indoctrinated into some sort of postmodern doctrine where they could be any gender and they could do whatever they want and be called whatever they want. So they're really afraid of that. And fear is a good way to get votes, unfortunately. So you're right. Politicians are probably just using it as a, as a wedge issue to really divide people and get them on their side uh, in the long run. But like you were saying, historically, we haven't seen too many issues here. Uh, presently, in the past few years, obviously in schools, we've seen a huge outbreak of uh, uh, people claiming to be different genders, even non-binary, etc. So that is an issue that needs to be tackled at some point because, um, you know, whether you believe in it or not, you have to understand that social contagion is a real thing, and some people that aren't actually transgender may think they are to want to fit into certain crowds. And if those people end up getting surgery or doing anything that affects the rest of their life, you know, that's something you want to prevent. At the same time, there are transgender people. You do want to be able to support them. And I agree with Pratik. I don't think you necessarily need legislation. And going back to what Nick was saying, it's really about common decency. If, if they want to be called Stacy, I'll call you Stacy. It's no big deal. But I also don't need the government to tell me I need to call you Stacy. So that, that, that's the only No, thing that's a really important <laughs> point about the government compelling speech. And I, I totally get that. I mean, at the end of the day, I do want to think, I would like to think, oh, if it's just a respect thing, you know, that's, that's a cultural issue that shouldn't be legislated. Um, but I, I think the issue becomes when, for example, I... I don't think it really makes sense, like you've been saying, Tyler, to sort of tie this to somehow lowering the suicide rate. I don't think that's really practical um, in any way or apparent. But let's say that were the case, then, OK, you sort of have an argument because that's sort of what government's there for. But in terms of compelling speech in the first place, I don't know, because I mean, ultimately, isn't that sort of where we draw the line, which is, you know, if you're advocating for violence or you know, pushing speech, I guess that's where there's all the backlash against, you know, cyberbullying in school where kids are you know, messaging each other, oh, go kill yourself, you know, go do this, go do that. And I think that's where you get, that's the type of speech that sort of gets pushed back against where we say, you know, maybe we're going too far, but something, something as simple as a name, I think part of it is just, this is all very new to a lot of people. And I don't think we quite figured out socially in a lot of these states how to deal with it. So I think the legislation in part is sort of like, hey, you've all these teachers or, or other you know, people trying to figure out how should I go about my daily life with this? And I think part of the legislation in some way, if I'm, you know, being, you know, nice about it could be like, oh, it's a general guideline for this. And yeah, if you mess up and call someone the wrong name, you know, you're not going to be held accountable for this in some way. But at the same time, ultimately, I do think it goes back to that respect issue. And I hope that it's resolved on the cultural 
um, through a cultural lens instead of relying on legislation to compel people to say one thing or the other. So why don't we turn into another super polarizing issue? So what do we got now? Well, ha uh, more than half of the Republican Senate nominees have rejected or cast doubt upon or tried to overturn the 2020 election results. So as I said, more than half of Republican nominees for the U.S. Senate, 35 seats uh, being contested in the 2022 midterms, have challenged the legitimacy of the 2020 election where they have rejected and raised doubts on President Joe Biden's victory. MAGA candidates have seen major victories throughout the GOP primaries, and Trump endorsements have played a major role in these primary victories. Many incumbents and in the blue state Republicans have cast a doubt on MAGA candidates winning in the general come November. Um, so moderate and liberal Republican gubernatorial candidates have historically seen more success in blue states, including Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker and Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. While various Democratic officials argue that MAGA candidates and their voter base are a threat to democracy, with President Joe Biden being the loudest to voice their hatred towards the MAGA movement. So given all of this, this is something we've just debated and discussed so heavily. I know you guys, you two guys have disagreed so much on this, but in terms of the political ramifications, uh, what do you think are the results of this? Clearly, when uh, Joe Biden comes out and calls out MAGA, MAGA Republicans and he's talking about the extremists, uh, by this, I, I don't see that being the case. I don't see how that could be the case. So I'll let you guys duke this out. I guess we will start with uh, Nick this time. All right, so I would definitely concede that, for example, even though I personally would like to see more Republican candidates saying, oh, yeah, look, the election was legitimate. Let's move past it. Let's hit the Democrats on things they're actually weak on and go from there. Instead, it's you know still the same tired old song, the, the beat of the drum around this election was fundamentally flawed. It was stolen from us. We should have won in the first place. Joe Biden is illegitimate. And instead of actually focusing on the real issues that will get Republican I don't know. I think part of it is just me being frustrated that the party isn't actually grappling with like they they have a winning message to some degree. Democrats are not popular with working class rural voters at all. And you've seen that shift dramatically over the past couple decades where you've seen historically pretty solid Democratic districts or toss up districts shift fundamentally and very certainly Republican. So I think, you know, maybe they've already made up however many gains they're going to make up. And this is sort of you know, the most polarizing thing where people are like, yeah, I don't like Joe Biden. He shouldn't have even been president. And that's part of it. But I think, you know, you see people who are speaking out about this, the Republicans who went on the January 6th committee, and most of them got booted. They're losing. You know, some of them went ahead and retired. Others lost their races. And you really only have two of the 10, I think, who ended up sticking around. So I think in general, if you're a Republican who sort of talks about it openly and says very clearly, yeah, Joe Biden won. I don't think that's going to look good for you no matter what. So I think they are all sort of have to rely on the same tired talk that they've been using the past couple of years. And unfortunately, I mean, I'm kind of sick of hearing of it. <laughs> I want to hear about actual issues that matter and not to say that, you know, if the election actually was fundamentally, you know, stolen from Trump, then yeah, that would be a big deal. But guess what? It wasn't. And the very Republicans he put in charge, the very Republicans in the party, all these people who wanted him to win at every point in time in Georgia and other states, every single time they said, oh, look, the process is legitimate. Joe Biden is president-elect. So I don't know. I just wish they would move on past this, but hard to expect from, you know, today's Republican Party. Prateek, what, how do you think they should address it? Okay, so I think in this kind of thing, 
the problem is that unless you are a um, member of MAGA, you're probably not going to have that big of a chance winning the Republican Party. And I think that's the main reason why all these candidates have to be in favor of, you know, arguing that the election was stolen from them. It's more of an election, it's more of like a political talk, talking point right now. It's the same as your Russian stuff that took place whenever, like, you know, Trump, whenever Trump was actually president, where Democrats, you know, hammered down the fact that the Russians rigged it. I think it's one of those that unless you do have Trump's endorsement, and unless you are a MAGA candidate, you're not going to have, you're not going to win the primaries. And that's the main thing we've been seeing. There are exceptions in some states like Georgia and Washington state. But a lot of those other states apart from Georgia, they're not going to ever have a Republican candidate probably win in many of those places anyway. So I think it's a big issue in many places, especially Northern areas, because I do think a lot of these Republican incumbents do have a point where many of the blue state candidates that do end up winning and do end up serving in office tend to be a lot more liberal oriented. And I'm thinking like, you know, whenever Mitt Romney was there, Mitt Romney was like the face of this entire blue state Republican movement. Whenever he was the governor of Massachusetts before he decided to become an establishment politician in Utah. Before that, whenever he was in Mass, that was that was his thing is that he was literally about the same. Tyler, what's your thoughts on all this stuff? What are your thoughts on the Republican situation? And what do you think that the situation would be any different? if um you know republicans were not talking about this stuff because i feel like if unless you were saying that you think the election is rigged you're probably not gonna win what are your thoughts on all that stuff well i was planning to be a bystander in this conversation i, I thought you guys were just going to completely duke it out looking at the results as as of late it seems like if you do want to get that hardcore MAGA republican base you're probably gonna have to say something like we don't actually know what happened but it certainly didn't go down the way it should have and I think that's kind of the right the the line they're towing right now. It's not even committing to Trump that he should have been in office, et cetera. They're just trying to cast a little bit of doubt, and that's all they have to do to pass for being a MAGA Republican. So I think that much they're willing to do. Past that point, saying it was a rigged election, all that, Trump should have won, et cetera. I don't even know they need to do that, nor do I think many of these candidates will do that. So those are my thoughts. I don't know. I think one thing that's important, too, is I didn't touch on this that much, but I do think at the same time, Democrats need to realize that MAGA candidates and this whole MAGA movement is a genuine thing. I really think that these people are underestimating the fact that when with this MAGA movement, you're swaying a lot more Republicans and you're swaying a lot of moderates that didn't generally used to vote as much, probably generally speaking, because I do feel like whatever about Trump, like at the end of the day, he did create a larger Republican Party like turnout. Same as Democrats did with Joe Biden, don't get me wrong, but we had higher voter turnouts in this past election than we ever did in the past. So yeah, but I you, think you don't think saying the election was faulty is going to turn moderates to being on your side. I don't think that's after, I don't after think this that, I many, don't think after gonna... two years of this event, I don't think anyone's being swayed by yeah, being told fair. the election's fraud. I think if you believe that you're f further entrenching that view. And if I want to get your vote, I'm going to have to appeal to that a little bit. That's fair. And that's, that's what's happening again. I don't really think it's an important issue. I mean, people are really hardcore about this thing. Like, obviously, many Republicans do genuinely believe that the election was stolen from them. Um, there are a lot of people that do believe that there was a lot of problems with the election, me included. And I've talked about this on the show many times. But I don't think 
that anybody is going to like it, all the republicans are going to support whoever the republican candidate is in the end of the day but within the gop primaries that kind of stuff did play a major role but when it comes in the general you're either voting republican or you're voting democrat i don't think moderates are going to be like oh this guy said the election was rigged i can't vote for him like you're not going to lose votes that moderate people are going to vote on their issues that they're more concerned about and they feel more strongly about. Some of them are going to be more concerned about the economic situations right now and the inflation situation. And some of them might be more environmentalist. They might be like, oh, climate change is a big thing. We need to fight for those causes. But I don't think that the election stuff is what's going to somehow sway somebody to vote Republican or Democrat. And I really don't. Like, but with the primary it could play a big role. But other than that, not really. See, that's the thing. You said it wasn't an important issue issue before. I actually do think it's a really important issue. I just don't think it's going to sway many people. That's really... That's fair. I don't think it's going to sway anyone, but I think it's going to sort of incentivize you and remind you of why you need to go out and vote. It's like, oh, I need to go out and vote because, you know, Joe Biden shouldn't be the president anymore. Or in this election, it's I need to go out and vote because the Democrats are corrupt and we can't have them in power because they're ruining the country. It's going downhill. So... I think that's part of it. Of course, you know, you'd like to think there are some positives, but I think it's easier to get people out to vote, myself included, where, for example, for me with uh, Biden's MAGA speech, where I was like, oh, wow, I'm being reminded of why I don't want these guys, particularly Trump, in power. Don't want him in power anymore. And this is why. So even though the speech is very negative, it's still an incentive or it's a motivator for people who really dislike the other side to go out and vote um, against them, essentially. But for independence, I mean, like you were saying, Tyler, I think that's an issue where generally independents, when they're polled uh, around all the election stuff, January 6th looked pretty badly for Trump with independence in terms of their approval of, you know, everything that happened that day. So I think if it keeps getting brought up, it's not exactly going to win them to the Republican side. But maybe Joe Biden's messed up enough times that independents aren't uh, aren't confident in him and therefore aren't confident in the Democratic Party as a whole. Do you think Biden's speech really gave that? Me- I got a different message from Biden's speech. It, for me, it wasn't that you're reminded that MAGA exists, Trump existed, we need to keep that out of office. It kind of showed to me, at least, that Joe Biden was willing to sink to whatever level, you know, to try to to try to get reelected, essentially. And I, I'm not sure what independents are seeing from that speech personally. Well, yeah, no, you're absolutely right in terms of the independent stuff. That is your background and the way that you look at it. But in terms of, you know, just a solidly blue or solidly red voter, I think that speech was more for the core of the party, not so much anyone else. I think the core of the party appealing to that, the audience is saying, wow, MAGA is pretty messed up. They're in favor of a country, a future for the country that I don't want to see, whether it's abortion, whether it's gun control, whether it's another issue. Um, I think a lot of the things that he sort of went out on, which uh, the the real irony of it is that the Republicans are constantly the party that's like, oh, law and order, law and order. We need law and order. Invest in the police. And that's exactly what Joe Biden's saying every single time. So it's like for the people who well, don't like the police, it depends. And, you know, it's like, who are you kind of left with? I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, in the, in terms of all that stuff, like, like, sure, whenever Trump was there, 
Like, you didn't see many terrorist attacks. You didn't see many challenges going on when it came to crime. We had lower crime rates than we had under the Biden administration right now. Obama administration was record highs, but people link that stuff. So a lot of the things that were happening with the, you know, econ economic crisis and all these kind of challenges that were taking place. But, I mean, sure, January 6th may have not looked great for Trump, um, but it also won probably some of his own voter bases because they were like, whoa, these people are willing to go take a stand on something that they believe in so strongly. Like, obviously, when you listen to CNN or when you listen to one of these news media organizations or if you listen to one of your liberal friends, they're going to be like, whoa, this is an outrage. How bad is this? But, I mean, if you listen to some right-wing person that's for Republican, they're going to be like, well, these people were taking a stand. I don't necessarily agree with how they did it, but at the same time, they felt passionate about it and they were raising, they're raising their opinions, opinions on the issue. It's the same as what these other people used to say about Black Lives Matter and other protest movements that have happened in the past, except this was a one-time protest and it happened on the Capitol building. People were more strongly angry that it happened on the Capitol building and the things that were being, that were being said at the time but at the same time it can be similar it can you can be you can compare it to other things because it caused as much damage and you know riffraff and people were angry about it on both sides of the aisle so i do think that that's a similar it's a different situation but i don't necessarily think january 6 stole any voters any in either direction people that were really angry about it they were probably not going to vote for trump anyway and the people that were passionate about it or people that were in support of it or people that agree with it and are not willing to say it because people are too scared of saying things because they don't we're worried about what somebody else is going to say like they're going to vote Republican anyway, too. So I don't think that's any issue. And I don't really think the law enforcement thing vote really changes people that are all about law enforcement and people that want more police. They're always going to be on the Republican side. Many of your gun stuff. So many of the Second Amendment rights and all that stuff kind of falls in correlation with law enforcement. I mean, mirror people never really look at it in that perspective. But the fact is that many of the people that are pro guns are heavily in favor of having more law enforcement. So I think it's one of those that it all depends on how you look at it. But I don't think January 6th changed any voters. I don't think that this MAGA stuff what Biden said is probably going to change any voters. People that are going to vote Republican are going to vote Republican. If anything, this is going to be, as Nick said with, with that speech, it was a reminder to Democrats, it's going to be a reminder to Republicans that, oh, Biden thinks we're all like little Hitlers because we're all left-leaning wackos and we're all fascists because we're the semi-fascist you know, group, the MAGA. So I think it all depends. Like you're gonna win your sides. We're a polarized country as it is. Republicans are gonna vote Republican. Democrats are gonna vote Democrat. And moderates, we don't know, but that's all based on the issues well, going on at the time. Well, look, some Democrats might be voting Republican, particularly in Martha's Vineyard. So what's been going on lately? Well, I got, I got a story for you. So we got Democrats accusing Republican governors Abbott and DeSantis of cruelly using migrants as political pawns after they chartered buses, buses and flights to send them to places like New York City and Martha's Vineyard. So we got migrants on two flights chartered by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis landed at Martha's Vineyard on Wednesday afternoon, and hours later, dozens of migrants sent by Texas Governor Greg Abbott arrived on buses near the Vice President's residence in Washington, D.C. Um, so 
basically we had, had all these migrants coming in, uh, being shipped over to different places from Florida and Texas, respectively. Uh, these migrants, as far as I know, looking into the article, were mostly from uh, Venezuela as well as Cuba, which are countries that we don't have amazing diplomatic relationships with, and we can't just deport them outright. Um, so they're going through some lengthy legal process. They're likely going to claim asylum, but essentially they're in no man's land. We don't know what to do with these migrants. Obviously, they are um, at the borders. They're in the United States and in Texas and Florida. They're kind of sick of it. They want them to be elsewhere. They want to show the country that this is a real issue that they're facing. So they just decided, probably as a political move, just to send them to random Democratic strongholds. And that's kind of what they did. And what happened immediately? Well, they caused an uproar in Martha's Vineyard specifically. I know the town was freaking out. They didn't know how they were going to pay for them. They said there wasn't enough room for them. They said they had been hit by COVID already and that uh, housing prices were already through the roof. And this was just adding another stressor on top of all of this. So what do you guys think of this political stunt that these governors had pulled off? Clearly, it's caused an uproar by the people living in those communities. But do you think they have a point that these people are so far removed from this migrant crisis that they really have no respect for it? And they're not willing to vote for people that are actually going to do something about it. So what are your guys' thoughts? So one thing with this, too, Greg Abbott's press secretary rebutted back saying the White House is full of a bunch of hypocrites led by the hypocrite in chief who has been flying plane loads of migrants across the country and oftentimes in the cover of the night. Just wanted to add that in there. But... I think many of these issues is one of those that, like, the answer is very simple. And sure, I'm a little bit more liberal on immigration, so I'm not, like, the one that's, like, the best person to say this. But at the same time, if you have all these problems of all these immigrants coming in, you don't know where to take them, ship them back to where they came from. You need to deport them back to those countries. It's a bad answer for people but, but that you feel... Can't. You can't. We you don't can. have diplomatic relations with Cuba or Venezuela, and that's the problem. That's we can't fair. just send them back. But that's part of it. They're claiming asylum. No, no, but think about it this way. They are not they are not legally lawful they're not lawful residents of the United States. So if anything happens to them, they're still they're still citizens of those countries, Venezuela and Cuba. So you can create more problems if something were to happen to these people because their um, identification and their immigration status is all relative is all their citizenship stuff is all based on those two countries. So if something were to happen, that can cause even more problems with Venezuela and Cuban relations. So they they might be in no man's land people might feel sad about oh all these people are dying and we're all bringing them here and this is an outrage and we need to protect all these people but at the same time these people are unlawful residents they're not supposed to be in the united states some of these people don't have proper documentation many of these people don't know who these people are so if something were to happen to them or if they were to do something to somebody else they don't have any proper law enforcement procedures and settings to be able to handle this crisis so what they should do is they should send these people back to the countries that they came from i know it sounds harsh i know it sounds mean and me as somebody that believes in terms like you need to have some kind of status and you need to be able to help all these people that are immigrants illegal immigrants achieve citizenship status by programs like daca because that's like liberal for me as a republican but at the same time like you need to send these people back before they cause any harm to your country to your reputation and the fact is that if something happens to them those countries in venezuela and cuba are going to make a scene out of it because they're citizens of those countries so you keeping them here is is against their laws so you're potentially violating those agreements even more by having those people come into the United States. So 
for this this is a very tricky issue right because on the one hand i do think in general with joe biden as president and trump out of office generally immigration isn't being looked at as more seriously because of what's going on in the rest of the economy right there are more pressing issues the same thing we've seen with afghanistan the same thing we've seen with abortion the same thing we've seen on a lot of issues something like immigration just isn't in the front of people's minds once a new crisis comes up right it's sort of in the days and weeks once a new um, news headline breaks like this, it's really in the top of your mind, but then it sort of slow fades away. With Trump, it was always on your mind in terms of immigration because he always railed on it being an issue. Um, the irony, of course, is that, and Tyler mentioned this before the show, that Obama ended up deporting more people than Trump did. Part of that is because people didn't even try to get into the country while Trump was in office based on his rhetoric. Um, but all that aside, I think part of it is, you know, it... it I've seen a lot of people point this out online, and it makes me feel a little, you know, very torn on this, because on the one hand, sure, I do think for southern states to say to other states, hey, we need more funds, we need more resources, we need to manage these record border crossings, right? I I definitely am sympathetic towards that. But in terms of, for example, what DeSantis did with this, which is essentially human trafficking, where you have people who are migrants in the country and putting them on a plane, telling them they're going to go do this thing, and essentially lying to them, and then sending them to a place where nothing's set up for them, I don't know, it just leaves a sour taste in my mouth in terms of the actual tactics. In terms of the bus stuff, I mean, I think it would be one thing if you were straight up with people, like, hey, we're going to send you to this place, but I think part of it is, um, man, it, it just the way he went about doing it, I think, is what bothers me. Not so much raising awareness of the issue. So they're debating the legality of it right now, but I'm pretty sure it's they know it's legal to to send them across states. They don't know if they could drop them off. That seems to be the big legal question. Can I drop them off? Yeah, you can. They can. They're in their states. They can do whatever they want. They're not supposed to lawfully be there anyway. So if anything, if they're moving them to another state, they're reducing the liability that they have on their own hands. That's why Democrats are pissed, because Democrats don't want these illegal immigrants in their states either. The way that they're putting it out in their press releases is, oh, all these Republicans are sending all these people over here. They're being inhumane. They're doing human trafficking. That's not necessarily the case. They have the ability to do that, because once you are in Texas borders, you are part of Texas anything happens to you it's you're in texas's jurisdiction and you don't have a jurisdiction because you're not a citizen and you're not lawfully supposed to be in the country i think the big thing i think i don't agree with nick because nick said this you had more record levels of immigration that happened under trump's trump's presidency than in obama's presidency but we've had more immigration happen every single year so sorry i misspoke it has, illegal did, border did trump crossings being then. president yeah, didn't he did. deter no, he anybody did, though, because there were less people and yeah. he deported yeah. less people I, no but number wise you had more right for legal immigration that applied to enter the united states every single year yeah i should have specified yeah, we're talking that about fatigue, illegal sorry. yeah but illegal immigration yeah sorry yeah legal immigration yeah we have like around 1.9 million that immigrate here every 1.9 million people that apply for to immigrate here and there's like around no a million point well people taken that they accept. that's a good correction yeah all right i wasn't trying to say that people didn't want to come here period because trump was in office that that wasn't what i was saying i was trying to say mm-hmm. yeah. you know illegal border crisis crossings which yeah. is what trump railed on the entire time he was saying if you're going to come here you got to come here legally and that was the entire kind of message behind the platform nick you said you were railing against the tactics a little bit, um, but 
My question is, immigration topics and debates have been going on for so many years. I know in the early 2000s, they were a huge, huge issue at the time, and nothing's ever really resolved from the situation. No real actions taken. The closest we came was having that Trump wall. So him taking this extreme action, I know it looks bad, and it's bad in terms of human humanitarian uh, way, but in terms of results and effectiveness in showing the actual situation and the problems they're experiencing, how else would you convince a northern democratic place to believe that immigration's an issue when it's happening hundreds of miles away from them and it really has no effect on their immediate daily life when in the South they are facing tremendous problems in terms of ha not having enough funding, these immigrants coming over year over year over year I, and not being able not to deal with It's not an issue with that tactic of just the means of transport. My issue with the tactic was telling people, and I don't know if this report is actually substantiated, but um, one of the reports coming out of this was that, this is from people who were sort of helping them leave Florida, was that they were being told, hey, we've got these jobs, we've got these opportunities and resources lined up for you and your families in Massachusetts, that's why we're flying mm -hmm. you out there. And I, I totally get what Pratik is saying, which is, oh, well, you shouldn't have come to the country in the first place. I get that. But at the same time, I, I think like, okay, just tell them that. I agree. Okay, you don't have to go ahead and say, oh, look, we're being so nice to you. We've lined up this great future for you and your family, and we're going to put you on a plane to Massachusetts. And then when you get there, you find out it's all a hoax. That, that's the issue I have with. It's like, you're, you're already in such a vulnerable position. Don't get yeah. someone's yeah. hopes up about having this bright future. And then just come to find out that it's all built on some lie. And I don't know. That just seems un unnecessary to me. And I don't. That's fair. And I don't mm -hmm. disagree with you on that topic. My only argument would just be that, I mean, if this were under Trump, you wouldn't have had these illegal immigrants probably here in the country in the first place because they wouldn't have been accepted from Venezuela and Cuba. Now that they're here from Venezuela and Cuba, now they're unlawfully here. The problem is that you have all these immigrants here, but the problem is that you have problems with Cuba and Venezuela. And if something happens to one of these people, they're an alien resident to those countries. So if something happens, well, those countries are going to be like, well, you took all these people in from my country and you didn't give them any rights. And instead, if something happens to them, they're going to blame you, causing more economic problems I don't and more think immigration that has, issues. I don't even think that plays anything into the equation. I don't think we care if Venezuela thinks one of their citizens got hurt when they came into our country illegally. I but, don't think they give a crap. I really, th I, I don't think that's the issue. So I just think that it's one of those issues that I agree with Nick on what the thing is. I, my solution would just be you need to send these people back regardless because you don't want these kind of liabilities on your hands. If something were to happen to these people, they're going to be held liable. And states have the ability to do all this stuff. It's not like, you know, what is his name? Abbott or DeSantis are doing something illegal. They're doing whatever they can. They're, they're doing, they're following their own laws. They're setting their laws. They can do whatever they want with these illegal immigrants. They're not supposed to be there anyway. Problem is, is it right or just or moral? That's a good question. Nick has a good point. But the fact is that what they should have done from the get-go is just deport them back to their country if they don't have the means and resources to handle these people coming into our country. Or if they want to get away with the political stunt, make sure that there's actually something set up for these uh, uh, illegal residents to come in and actually, you know, live their life. But unfortunately, that's not going to happen at all because the reason they did it in the first place was to sow chaos in these yeah. democratic places, which they did. So where are we going to send these people, guys? We can't send them to Venezuela, Cuba. What about Pakistan or, or China? Maybe too too much water or too little. I don't know. Pratik, yeah, I mean, Nick, so what's, in terms what's going of on? The water situation. I mean, we've we've been through a lot this summer. 
So the water woes in both Pakistan and China have been a big, big mess. So in Pakistan first, the South Asian nation of some 220 million people, it's one of the biggest countries on earth, is at the epicenter of a climate crisis following historic monsoon rains in July and August. More than 1,500 people have died so far, while 33 million people have been affected by these floods. Pakistan's climate change minister, Sherry Rehman, called the extreme weather, quote, the monster monsoon of the decade. And according to Pakistan's National Disaster Management Authority, rescue and recovery missions are slow, and more than half a million people are still in makeshift camps. Now, the government estimates total financial losses at $30 billion, with at least 4 million hectares, or 9.8 million acres, of diverse agricultural land destroyed, according to Pakistan's Minister of Planning. And particularly, Tyler, I want to get to you on this. But before I do, we are also seeing that in China, which is right next door. You see that a record-breaking drought has caused some rivers in China, including parts of the Yangtze, to dry up, affecting hydropower, halting shipping, and forcing major companies to suspend their operations. A nationwide drought alert was issued on Friday. And the Yangtze, just for sort of background, is the third world the world's third largest river and provides drinking water to more than 400 million people. It's vital to China's economy and it's also vital to the global supply chain. Climate change overall is reducing flows to Yangtze's sort of main river trunk. And you're seeing that it's 50% below the average over the last five years. So in Pakistan, we're seeing record uh, flooding. China, we're seeing record droughts. Pratik Tyler, what do you what are your thoughts on this? I mean, if, if it's climate related, if it's water related, I know Pratik and I see eye to eye on everything. So Tyler, why don't we start with your thoughts first? <laughs> oh God. Oh no, what are we gonna do? Uh, <laughs> no, but look, I mean, in Pakistan, that's terrible. I didn't realize that it was that bad. It's gonna cost them thirty billion dollars. What is the total GDP of Pakistan? I'm sure it's not that high so you know this is a huge economic hit for them especially when they do have so much poverty in that country i can't imagine what's going on there but then on the other extreme end in china this is what i think play is going to be a huge problem for china because they have so many people relying on this river that's drying up apparently 2022 is just one of the driest years we've had in a very long time i was just reading an article about that and yeah that's not going to be good for china as they're uh, coming out of this pandemic they thought they would be able to pick things back up but now they're being slowed down again and it's going to continue for quite some time at least that those are the predictions i've seen so you know i don't know as much about water as you nick but I can say that this situation is not looking too I, good. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree, Tyler. And one thing that's pretty crazy is that actually as you kind of see these shifting extremes, um, it's not as good for the groundwater or for rainwater to infiltrate into the ground. Essentially, you have differences in soil saturation where it can end up making this stuff worse. So that's one crazy thing to think about. You would assume that, A, if it's really dry, it's good if it rains. But in fact, if it's super, super dry, it can actually make it a lot harder for the soil to actually absorb the water in the first place, and you will have more runoff leading to these floods. So Tyler referred to this. So I just want to let you know, Pakistan's GDP is 292 USD. 292 billion USD. So oh, it's okay. not... Like, Holy crap. Yeah, that's it's still a lot of money. $30 billion out of that. But I mean... Pakistan has had a lot of challenges. They have a lot of economic challenges, political challenges, you name it. They just had like a disruption in their government system where they had a new prime minister that got... So they haven't had any prime minister that's actually been elected and finished his term. 
They always have a vote of no confidence, kick the prime minister out that they recently elected, put some new guy in, then they have an election, and then that guy gets removed from their party along the way. So it's like they haven't had a general, they haven't had a genuine election or political system in a while. So that's not good either. But Pakistan, I mean, I feel for these people. I think that you need to do something to help these people out in their water crisis. Um, generally speaking, like these monsoons happen in India and Pakistan and a lot of those countries because their draining system is not that great, which is a main challenge that they have. I think that the World Bank and the IMF should spend more money on trying to help these countries develop better drainage systems that they don't have these challenges. And with China, like I don't really have much to say. I think it's bad that their river is drying up. I do think that eventually, whenever there is more rain that happens, is gonna potentially solve this problem. But I do feel America and a lot of these other countries are providing a lot of foreign aid to assist China. And China has their own governments and you know friendly ties to a lot of countries. So they're probably covered somewhat as well. But I think it's a major challenge in the long run because we all need water and we need to make sure that these kind of issues have some kind of solution there to prevent these kind of things but you can't necessarily prevent these these environmental problems it's just something that you need to have as backup so you need to have more water fresh water available you need to have certain resources provided to them from other countries potentially so that whenever these challenges do take place it is not impacting the people as badly as you know it seems in like face value so obviously Nick knows more than me. I was just giving my two cents. All right, guys. So next up, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization showcased the rise of China, Russia, Turkey, and Iran as an emerging block of countries. While the SCO is ostensibly a group of states that includes the most of the countries of Central Asia, the role of Turkey and Iran this year was way greater uh, in importance than it has been in the past. Uh, Turkish social media was full of posts showing Turkey's president meeting with Russian's leader as well as speaking with other authoritarian leaders at the SEO summit in Uzbekistan. Chinese President Xi Jinping said member states to keep the SEO on the right course, deepen cooperation in various fields, and continue to foster a favorable environment for the developmental and rejuvenation of member states. Um, so what are you guys' thoughts on this SEO thing, the fact that we have a new block arising of countries? You know, we we would deem authoritarian and not the best, not the, not, not as Trump would say, not the best countries, maybe even shithole countries. And they're, they're, they're grouping up together. They're trying to face against the West. What are their chances, guys? So this is like the... If there was World War Three, these guys would be the bad guys. This is like the opposite of NATO. These are like the authoritarian NATO. So it's an interesting situation. I don't know what's really going to come about of it. China is automatically the leader of this organization as it is. So whatever Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping says is important. And it's called the Shanghai Corporation Organization. Cooperation Organization. Even I messed it up. But... I think the SCO could potentially become bigger if they added more countries. They're trying to get more Arabic countries and Asian countries to join their forces. I don't think that's going to happen necessarily, but China is focused on adding a lot more authoritarian regimes in their country because they're trying to have like their own front against the West. 
And I think that this is like a good start for those people if that's what China's goal is. And maybe this kind of stuff is going to make those authoritarian countries more united. It's a bad situation for countries like America because if something were to happen in the long run, if there was some kind of war, let's say China invaded Taiwan and we were to have like some kind of World War III take place, this kind of thing is not good because these are the countries that will ally, ally together in against the United States. But it's one of those that we don't really know. This is a potential, you know, conspiracy type thing. But at the, at the right now, all we know is this is like the authoritarian version of NATO. I think Turkey is probably the most unusual name on that list. In terms of countries I thought would have been opposing the West regardless of what happened, you know, Turkey's the one that I could see siding with the West in certain circumstances. Couldn't see that with Iran, Russia, China, etc. So that's the only country that I'm surprised by in this block. But otherwise, it seems to be kind of what the international order has been leaning towards. Yeah, so anyway. Turkey definitely yeah. is strange. Like you were saying, Tyler, um, they're trying to straddle both the East and the West. So with the West, it's still, you know, still a NATO member. That's actually one of the reasons why Ukraine was sort of opposed in terms of NATO membership was Turkey was making a big stink about it. Because on the one hand, Turkey wants to have a good relationship with Russia. In the same way that they've been playing both sides, they were playing both sides in the Cold War. They're trying to do something similar now with Russia, China. And I guess, like like you guys are saying with Iran, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the difference here between how it was in the uh, 60s through to the fall of the Soviet Union. But all that being said, uh, with Turkey aside, I, I don't know. I just see this as a pretty run-of-the-mill kumbaya, let's get together and make a new alliance thing. I, I don't think it's a fundamental game changer. I don't think it's going to make waves in any way. I think it's just more, more of the same that we've been seeing, which is you know the Eastern Bloc, China trying to get closer to Russia and to other states. Iran seems like a very natural ally in that. Um, and you can sort of see from the U.S. and who our allies are in the Middle East, you know, if you look at Israel, Saudi Arabia, other countries, they're all sort of opposed to Iran. That's who we're sort of against. And so China, it only seems natural that they're going to buddy up with Iran when we're sort of against them. So it just seems like a natural fit. I don't think this is such a such a huge deal. But who knows? We'll see. Sometimes these small alliances can really start to snowball. And China, as much as they've been making both enemies and friends in the world, um, we'll see I'm most interested in the relationship with Russia and how that ends up going because Russia's got a, a lot of natural resources and China's very hungry for them. But it'll take Russia a little while to pivot away from Europe, which has been paying them higher prices, and pivot back to China, um, which I think is how it's sort of been in the eastern part of Russia, at least for a long time. But we'll see how the economy moves, especially with the war in Ukraine. I mean, total embarrassment for the Russians. So. I think it will largely depend on that, whether or not they're able to save face. But this kind of reminds me of, you know, Mao coming in and China sort of leapfrogging or starting to. They didn't fully leapfrog Russia in any way, but starting to be seen less as a junior partner and more as an equal or a senior partner where, you know, 50 years ago, the situation would have been so much different with Russia being sort of the big brother in the situation. Now China's seeing itself as the big brother. So we'll see that how this all progresses. But ultimately, I just think this is, you know, the same sort of kumbaya stuff that the U.S. does all the time. Speaking of the U.S., the major thing that's been going on over here has been this railroad strike that Nick talked about in the beginning of the show. So railroad strike was averted after marathon talks reached tentative deals. Still, so unions and management reached a tentative deal early Thursday averting a freight railroad strike that had threatened to cripple U.S. supply chains and push prices higher for many goods. 
The deal with unions representing more than 50,000 engineers and conductors was announced just after 5 a.m. Eastern time today in a statement from the White House, which called it an important win for our economy and the American people. A verbal agreement between these two sides was reached at about 2.30 a.m. Eastern time today, according to sources, and the final hours were spent getting the details worked out. That concluded about 20 hours of talks between the union's leadership and the railroad's labor negotiators, hosted by Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. The deal gives the union members an immediate 14% raise with back pay dating back to 2020 and raises totaling 24% during the five-year life of the contract that runs from 2020 through 2024. It also gives them cash bonuses of $1,000 a year. All told, the back pay and earlier bonuses will give union members an average of an $11,000 payment per person once a deal is ratified. So, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts on this railroad strike and what happened and this negotiations? So this actually goes back to sort of the dawn of the union era in this country where the railroads and specifically coal companies, they've always been intertwined. You used to have it where railroads were actually monopolies on a state-by-state basis. And so what you would end up doing is you've, you'd load things up to onto one rail car. It would go across, let's say, West Virginia or Wyoming or Montana or wherever, and it would you wouldn't be licensed to operate in that other state, so you'd have to go all the way back. It sort of ran as all these local monopolies that were going on. And a lot of that you know, sort of led into the union movement saying, hey, look, we can have a lot of sway over how this ends up happening with commerce. So ultimately, the U- United States government, to cut it very short, has always been very harsh on the railroad unions because it's seen as sort of being able to stop having the power to stop the very lifeblood of the American economy. Now, not everything is transported by railroad, but a lot of it is. And so I think for Biden, this is a huge win where it's sort of seen as, look, you were able to come in and mediate this. But on the other hand, the fact that it even got to this in the first place, I I don't know, man. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for railroad workers, but ultimately I think there are some jobs out there where it's like you are expected to be on the road. You are expected to be you know, sort of on call. That's essentially what you're signing up for. And on the one hand, I I definitely have sympathy where it's like, oh, is, is that like the only opportunity you have? In that case, yeah, you know, it's a pretty bad feeling when the only opportunity you have to pull yourself out into the middle class firmly is to work a job where you can't make consistent doctor's appointments. You can't go to the dentist. You can't be around for birthdays. You can't be around for funerals. You're expected to be on call. You're expected to be on the road. And the thing is, your schedule is so messed up that you don't even know when you're going to come back. I've been listening a lot to my local NPR station this week, and whether it's through interviews or just through background research, they've kind of been shedding light on just how little control railroad workers have over their own schedules. And it seems like a terrible way to live. So on the one hand, sure, you've got all the pay stuff. But on the other, I think the major thing here is just you know, work-life balance. And I've definitely got some sympathies for it. But on the other hand, you know, at a certain point, there are just some jobs fundamentally where you are expected to be on the road. You know that when you're signing up. And for them to fundamentally alter that, I just feel like they would have to hire so many more workers. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure of what the industry is like in terms of its economics to be able to say, you know, oh, that's feasible or oh, that's not. You know, for all the talk of automation we have in other industries like trucking, um, that doesn't really seem to be a point of contention for the railroads. Maybe it is, and I'm just not aware, but for shipping, for trucking, for other logistics, you see it all the time. I just wonder what it's like for railroads. But Pratik, I know you're usually anti-union. 
do you think they should have given in? Yeah, so I think right now the annual inflation rate of the last few days ago was 8.3%, which is like the highest it has ever been since it was 8.5%, which was which it was rising. But over the past 12 months ended August 2022, and this date, this stuff was dated September 13 when it was published by the U.S. Labor Department. The reason I'm saying that is whenever you start paying a lot more to railroad workers, what's going to happen whenever 30% to 40% of all transportation that happens based on, you know, supplying ship shipments of goods and resources and utilities and things like that, you're going to have challenges because whenever you supply products and those products go higher up in prices, people are going to be outraged. Your inflation rate is already at the highest point it's probably ever been in our history since like the FDR times whenever we hit the Great Depression. If inflation is that high, the problem is going to be that your product prices are only going to go up. This happens because of this railroad strike. If the railroad strike didn't happen, this stuff, these changes wouldn't have happened. But now that these deals were made, you're going to be spending a lot more money on these railroad workers. So what that means is it's going to cost you more, more money for you to supply products from place to place. So that's going to mean that you're going to be spending a lot more money on products that you buy that are shipped from the transportation industry, which that's a lot of products. And for businesses that do engage in businesses that have some kind of supply chain stuff that goes on, which is a lot of, you know, businesses, especially brick and mortar businesses, they're going to have a lot more challenges too, because they're going to be spending spending a lot more more money for the items that they buy. So I don't think this is a win for anybody. If you're a railroad worker and you're making more money, great. But the problem is that because you're going to make more money, we're all going to suffer because I'm going to be spending more money for products that I buy. I'm going to be spending more money for things that I buy on a regular basis from the grocery store, things that we need in our regular lives. And I think this is something that these people need to learn about and Democrats need to accept this as a fact because they like to talk about how they're fighting inflation, but all they're doing is they're supporting all of these people that are going to make inflation go up more. Whether you're paying, want to pay people more money, whether you want to do more things to make it more regulations on all these businesses, whether you want to advocate for nursing unions and railroad unions, all you're doing is you're making it harder for the American person. And sure, I feel for these railroad workers; they work a hard amount, of hard amount. Sure, in the future, you're not even going to need railroad workers anymore, so they're shooting themselves in the foot because the automation industry is going to kill these people's jobs faster than many of the other industries, especially the trucks and all that stuff but that's a little bit different but when it comes to railroad strikes i think this stuff is bad because it can cause a lot more havoc and now that all these people held the country hostage by going at a railroad strike now because of these people you're going to be spending more money every time you go buy something and no one ever thinks about the low-income person that doesn't have that much money when it deals with them buying consumer goods that should be cheap like milk bread etc so i think this is great for those people that want to make it so that all these people are making more money but in the end of the day you're screwing over the regular american population because all of us rely on products, we all need these basic necessities and common goods. And when those common good prices go up, you're screwing over everybody, rich, poor, and everyone in between. So that's my thoughts. Pratik, thanks for laying it out for us. The anti-union sentiment as always. We appreciate it, giving us everything we need to know about the situation here. But that's all we got for this week. So thank you everyone for tuning in to episode 96 of Politicana. As always, you can catch us next week. Uh, if you'd like to support us, feel free to support us with the link below. Please share us any platform you are on. So we appreciate your time and hope you guys have a great weekend. Take care.